Welcome to the Most Interesting People in Higher Education. I'm Lee Bradshaw, and this is a Noodle Production. I've spent my entire career collaborating with some of the most influential campus leaders. Together, we've transformed higher ed. In this series, I'll take you on never-heard-before journeys from the narrative arcs of the people evolving some of the most respected institutions in the world. You'll get an insider perspective from the mission-driven administrators, influential professors, devoted researchers, and others that are part of the highly interesting cadre of people transforming higher ed. Welcome to the show. All right, welcome back to the most interesting people in higher education. Today, I am joined by Wendell Brassi. He's the Associate Chancellor of Sustainability at the University of California at Irvine. It's a lot of a word, a mouthful of words, and a lot of titles and a lot of stuff. But uh, Wendell, how do you uh, how do you think about yourself in the context of higher ed? And I'm curious what's going on in your world. Well, I think I ended I landed in the right place many years ago when I when I ended up in higher education. Uh, that's when I moved from the corporate sector, where I spent my first three years after getting my MBA uh, into the, the first university I moved to was the University of Rochester in the Eastman School of Music. I was the assistant dean for administration. I'm not a musician. That's not why I was hired. I was I was brought in as the uh, that's right. the administrative officer of, of the Eastman School of Music, which had some pretty serious problems at the time. Uh, it, it was overspending its endowment, for example. That's a serious problem. Mm. Uh, That'll uh, do it. Yeah. And a few other problems like that. And um, then I moved from there to uh, later, uh, while well, I was still at the University of Rochester, I, I was at the associate director of the Laser Fusion Laboratory called the Laboratory for Laser Energetics. Uh, and then I moved to California uh, some time ago. That was in, I hate to tell you how long ago, it was in 1978. I, I became the uh, vice chancellor for administration at the University of California, Santa Cruz, spent 13 years there. And then uh, uh, 27 years as the administrative vice chancellor at UC Irvine. And then about the last, sort of lost track exactly, I guess about the last three or four years as the associate chancellor for sustainability at, at Irvine. That's a great, that's a, that's a great path. And then before that, when we were, we were catching up, when we first met a few weeks ago, you, I think you mentioned something around, you know, having kind of great depression era parents and how that, that shaped some of this too. So if we can even go back further, if you'll allow me to. Oh, um, sure. How did that come to shape? Not well, the that depression. Kind of but, around to <laughs> what I'm doing now. We, we never used the word sustainability in my home when we were growing up. If we had, it would have seemed like it was redundant because we just sort of took for granted. So my parents uh, uh, both came out of rural backgrounds. They grew up in the Great Depression. This means uh, that you know my mother made all the clothes for for her kids. Uh, my brother was always a little bit uh, disgruntled that he had to wear the clothes that I'd worn first. And, and after after he wore them, they were really good clothes. She made good clothes. Uh, they get donated to charity afterwards. And, and uh, my dad had three gardens, not just behind our house, but the two neighbors who were widows, he went to them and said, uh, look, I'll, if you let me take your backyard and turn it into a garden, I'll give you fresh vegetables on your back porch every day. And uh, and we had so many, so we were, my mother was able to can fruits that lasted through the whole winter. So the idea of being resourceful, mm. it, it, just, it was it was part of our DNA at that point. And, and my dad could fix anything. He was a tool and die maker. So um, if something was broken, it never got replaced. It got fixed. 
Uh, we drove a car that was, uh, I don't know, 15 years old, I think, and and uh, it ran perfectly. It took us on a vacation all the way to the Canadian Rockies and back. And, and uh, you know, so it, it was just an environment where being resourceful, uh, caring about nature. Actually, my parents, uh, all the vacations we took were to national parks or in some cases state parks uh, in, in northern Midwest, like in, in the northern part of Minnesota, for example. Yeah. So I, and um, which one do you remember? Early, yeah. That, earliest memory, earliest memory of a park. Which one was uh, it? Oh, I remember my sister and I were in the back seat of the 41 Plymouth that was heading across, uh, I guess it was Saskatchewan toward the Canadian Rockies. And we were asleep in the back seat with a dog. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden I heard my dad who was driving say, there they are. And I woke up and I said, what's he talking about? I don't see anything. And he pointed way out on the horizon, and about this high, you could see the peaks of the Canadian Rockies. They were probably 100 feet away, but Saskatchewan is very flat. Ah. Maybe we were in Alberta by then. And yeah. uh, yet I thought, and I've never, ever forgotten his excitement at seeing those mountains, the Rocky Mountains from 100 miles away. I yeah. think of that every single time I take a hike in the eastern Sierra Nevada. Was it? Uh, were they snow-capped? Is that why you could kind of see the line of them? Uh, they were, yeah. It's it's pretty far north. I mean, yeah. And and they were snow capped, which makes them easier to see in the sun, of course. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. All right, that's a that's a nice yeah. image as we as we lead into this. So, um, uh, you said a nineteen forty one Plymouth. That was the yeah. I can also yeah. picture that. I, I think I know the the version of the car you're speaking of. So, I mean, your your upbringing, I know, it was out of necessity around the after the Great Depression, but it, it's it's almost like every New York Brooklyn hipster's dream. <laughs> to, to be making clothes and canning food and uh, doing tool and die. Um, that's that's pretty incredible. So so I we started with the, the higher ed employment pathway and, and the starting corporate. And then now we know a bit about the why, the why at your core, why you believe in uh, resourcefulness. What's on your mind these days about resources then? So it's, it's clearly been well, with you your entire life. Yeah, and I think that actually relates back to my parents as well, because they, they, they were always involved in volunteer work. My dad was a scoutmaster. My mom was involved in all kinds of uh, things that benefited the kids. And and, um, and that's what that's what sustainability is all about. Hmm. It's about a public mission about a, uh, to solve a, a global problem. So, um, again, we never talked about sustainability. We never I never even heard that word used uh, probably until the 80s or, uh, or so. And uh, but um, that's that's how kind of it, it all got started, I think. And, and uh, seeing them involved in civic affairs, uh, public affairs, and that kind of thing. And oh, my dad uh, coached baseball, little league, minor leagues, and Babe Ruth at different times. So there was a sports link to this too that that had to do with uh, competition is a good thing, and and uh, hmm. uh, and education. We always assumed that we were going to go to college and, and get an education. And um, that was their number one priority, I think, for the kids too. And when you when you Besides think about instilling a set of, set of values that, that that they did, I mean, right. they were good values. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's clearly great values. When you think about competition, that was interesting. I uh, my hunch is you're thinking about like if you give ratings, people will compete to have a better rating or something. But is that um, is that what you mean at the intersection of competition and sustainability? Like where where does your head go? Well. The competition I'm thinking about is more of a quality-based idea. To, hmm. First of all, um, my dad was taking regular courses in the evening, even though he didn't have a college degree. He was trained as an, in an apprenticeship program. 
uh, to be a, a tool and die maker. Um, he uh, uh, he took education classes throughout his entire career, all the way into his retirement. And uh, my mother did too. And um, the idea was uh, we can never learn too much. And 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 when we when we uh, develop mm. a model of a problem, it needs to be evidence based. And you know that's something I heard in research universities for the last 40 years, the idea of being evidence-based. My dad didn't use that term, but that was exactly the way he thought. I can tell you it, it had to be evidence-based and it had to be based on solid facts. And and uh, that's good because uh, I think that's kind of where I always thought there was no problem that could be unsolved. And I, and I worked for people who, who felt that way too. The various chancellors of the University of California I worked for one of them was Bob Sinsheimer, who actually convened the Asilomar Conference in about, I forget exactly when it was, probably about 1980. That's where they planned, they mapped out the plan to decode the human genome. Mm. That's the kind of people I was lucky to work for, people that saw problems this big and said, yeah, maybe we can tackle that. So these things are actually kind of related to, to my um, appreciation for the culture I've ended up in. In higher education, we when we when we had a chance to speak. You mentioned a few um, different folks. I I have some notes on them. I think uh, Ralph uh, Cicerone, Michael Drake. Oh yeah, um, a few people that that seem to really guide you or uh, your values and and your trajectory. I'm curious, you know, what does leadership what does leadership mean to you? Other than like I could tell that the way you spoke about just people that had influenced you, you clearly have a, a strong uh, appreciation for them and respect for them, but like, what what is it about their form of leadership that was so impactful? I guess is the the question I'm trying to get to. Well, I, I didn't really know the answer to that when you and I talked, but I, I actually um, thought about it and I made a list of all the um, hmm. all the bosses I'd had over my entire career, and it was ten people, and then I realized half of them, fully half of them, came out of MIT. And what that means is they valued experimentation. That's great. And um, uh, they, uh, if they, they, they were not bureaucratic at all. I mean, if you saw right. a problem, you started thinking, well, is there a model on how we could address this? Well, if not, let's develop a model and, and, and let's test it. And it was okay to test something and, and uh, have it not succeed because you just, you'd try another model. You'd, you'd do right. more experimentation. And they understood that the reason science has made progress is because mistakes were made. That there would never be good science discoveries if there had not been mistakes. And so that really fitted my personality. I think I wanted to experiment and, and try try new uh, ideas. I questioned the status quo about lots of things. In fact, one of the ways to get me uh, going, I think, was to say, "Well, this is a standard practice, or this is uh, this is the way it's always been done, or this is a, a policy." And and I knew that that kind of thinking was dangerous in a bureaucracy where things started right. start to be called standard practices, or you know. So I always say, "Well, where is the evidence? Let's, let's see the data." And uh, and fortunately, I was able to uh, attract people who worked for me over these past decades who did the same thing. They had an attitude. And the attitude was, show me the data. And uh, I worked for people who were <laughs> in the mm. same way. So that's part of a value system, I think, questioning the status quo and, and being willing to experiment. Uh, and then in the background, in a university, 
every university, you know, uh, and this is true of both public and private universities, there's a sense of public accountability in the background of every good university. And um, uh, obviously, the, the public accountability is obvious in the case of uh, public universities because you're you're spending money that's coming from taxpayers and 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 tuition payers and and, and federal government and so on. And so you and you have to be accountable for that. You don't overrun your budgets, uh, and and you 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 make sure the money was well spent. But it's also true of privates. Privates are a public trust too, and mm. and uh, uh, they may not have money from the state, uh, but they're having there's a lot of federal money coming in. It's tuition money. Uh, it's it's uh, a lot of uh, loans that are guaranteed uh, for students by uh, federal the federal government and so on. So that is important because uh, that's the balancing part. I mean, the the balance is between reckless experimentation, hmm, right. which we don't do. Respo- it has to be responsible experimentation right. and questioning of the status quo because there's this public trust that's uh, at the foundation in the background. That's and right. Every single person I worked for had had that that kind of uh, uh, set of values. So it's 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 much easier to work for people who have a, f- a set of values that you respect. Hmm. I, I do remember uh, my first meeting with the president of the University of Rochester. His name was Bob Sproul. And uh, I was impressed because, uh, first of all, I was surprised that he, the president of the university, called together all the business officers of all the various schools. So I was there from the Eastman School, and there was someone there from the School of Medicine, School of Law, and so on and so on and so on. And I can't remember what the the issue was being discussed. It was something having to do with uh, uh, resources or a business problem or something like that. And I was keeping my mouth pretty pretty much shut at that meeting. It was my first meeting. I'd never met most of those guys, maybe not none of them. Hmm. And uh, what impressed me was he, he asked their opinion after uh, they'd had a discussion going on for a while, and they all agreed. And that really irritated him. He said, if you all agree, that just tells me that you're not thinking. The meeting's over. And he walked right. out. Yeah. yeah. First, I was kind of shocked. And then afterwards, I thought, I've ended in the right place. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I I thought that was fantastic, and uh, actually I became good friends with him. He was one of my mentors. I didn't report to him; I reported to the the director of the Eastman School. Reported to him, but Bob Sproul was uh, a good example of the kind of leader who I think exemplified the value system that I think is important in in, uh, in, a, in a career anyway. Yeah, and a lot of people were that way. Ralph Cicerone, who you mentioned, the mm. thing about him that was fascinating to me. First of all, he was the first academic who who came up with the idea that that a sustainability program should be called Earth System Science. And I was with Ralph many, many times when he very politely corrected a student or a faculty member or a member of the public who said Earth Systems Science. He said, no, the point is it's one system. Everything's interconnected. They're connected by feedback loops, by th- by by cause and effect uh, a phenomena that cascade down a string of, of cascading uh, effects and so on. He explained that very politely to people, but his point was clear. But anyway, when he he left the chancellorship uh, at at UC San- uh, Irvine uh, and and uh, became the president of the National Academy of Science, I visit him every time I went to Washington D.C. and he'd pull out this long tablet, yellow tablet of everything we discussed the last time. And he kind of gave me an oral exam going through this thing. I thought, he cares so much. He's left this job and he still cares just as much as when he was my boss. So it's it's the passion about these things that I'm talking yeah. about that really comes across. 
a passion for experimentation, for for using evidence-based uh, facts to question the status quo, uh, thinking in terms of the public accountability that that we all have in higher education. So that that that's that's the kind of environment I've been really really fortunate to work in. I love that, and I uh, on the public accountability front. Um, so my wife and I are expecting our first kid uh, in oh. late in late May, and um, I, I was frustrated that I couldn't get straight answers on why you should or shouldn't do things um, during this. Like you know, there's opinions on caffeine and alcohol and dance oh, lessons, yeah. right? And then um, somebody, one of the books we read, I think it was Emily Oster. She was like, "There's no data because there, you can't do tests on humans," and so. Yeah it's all opinion based there's no evidence there's like some like you know fringe case evidence and there's some things some studies they've done that gets close but the reality is so much of it is old wives tales still because you can't test humans because it's not publicly accountable <laughs> when yeah. when i realized that i know that has nothing to do with sustainability but it was like it changed the way i think about all data it's like okay so to to achieve this data you have to you have to do something you have to do some testing um and if if it's not if it's not good for humans to do the tests you're probably not going to get data out of it and so anyway she's got me well, that's why science that. is so good uh, is because uh, uh see what you just described is is uh, not just a set of practices it's a set of ethics right good right. scientists good academics uh they follow that and and uh, sometimes it takes a little longer to get to a clear unequivocal uh conclusion uh but um that's that's really good i think the way it pays off for society in the long run. I think that's right. And I was, and here my mother, mother add to this, um, if I can, I mean, you're, you're light years ahead of me on evidence-based things, but I, um, this is going to sound trite in comparison to all the experience you have, but I found a, uh, there was a tweet I found the other day that I sent to my team that I liked. I know you're probably like wondering why, why I tweet, but so who, Alex Ramosi, guy on Twitter and his, the, it was short. It was, I'm going to read it to you. It was don't build confidence, build evidence confidence comes as a result of evidence, not the other way around. And I was like, that is just as the few words necessary as possible to drive such a good point. It's like anybody who's out politicking and using confidence, you can't trust that. But if somebody yeah. has the data, they have the research, they've done the, they've done the work, you know, that's pretty confident. And so just wanted to throw yeah. that in there. Now, another thing I like about UC Irvine, and this, this actually is true of a lot of campuses. I'm, hmm. I'm not just saying Irvine's unique in this regard, but you, Irvine's pretty special in this regard, I have to tell you, and that is the view at Irvine on the part of the faculty, and I'm talking, when I say faculty, I don't mean just in engineering or physical sciences or medicine. I'm saying the whole campus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the view is we want to, the faculty, um, rather than just study a problem forever, and, and get more and more precise measurements, more and more precise models, more and more uh, 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 you know numbers behind the decimal point. Uh, they get to a point where quickly they see how serious this problem may be for the world. And, and they're really thinking in planetary terms mm. uh, when it comes to climate. And they will pivot from discovery to climate solutions. And the kind of climate solutions I see people working on around me all the time at UC Irvine is climate solutions that will not just make Irvine the campus or the city or the county, Orange County, California, or even yeah. California yeah. Uh, solve a climate problem. They have to go global. That's the kind of thing that people put value in. And uh, actually, this started uh, 
uh, when Sherwood Rowland uh, discovered uh, uh, and Mary Molina discovered the uh, effect of chlorofluorocarbons on the ozone layer in the early 70s. And um, a lot of people think that Sherwood, Sherwood Rowland might have gotten the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1995 if he'd stayed in the laboratory, got lots of citations, written lots of articles, uh, got appointed to a lot of uh, distinguished committees, got elected to the National Academy of Science just on the basis of his chemistry, he yeah. might have gotten the Nobel Prize. He couldn't stand the idea of staying in, in, in his laboratory. He became yeah, had to get it out. politically active, and it resulted in the Montreal Protocol, which is still the most effective and successful global agreement about the climate ever ever established. We need we need more of those kinds of agreements at this point. We need we need something that really does address the, the problems now of climate. And, uh, and that that was specifically around CFCs, like that was a reduction. Yes, was, yeah. and like that was, was why why aerosol cans can't contain so much and things like that. That that's yeah. all okay. Got it. I'm yeah. catching up with you. So I think he established that that culture, and a lot of people give me credit for doing a lot of things that that have uh, you know they're associated with UC Irvine, uh, like this attitude of. of looking for solutions that scale globally. No, it wasn't me. I just landed in the right place. The culture was established by people like Sherry Rowland. Hmm. Humble. It's true. <laughs> so let, let me, okay, fair. But you, you've you've achieved quite a bit while at Irvine around sustainability um, or earth system science, if, if we want to, we can call it that. It's not, sure. not, two, not two systems, one system. So tell me a little bit about I don't, you don't have to frame those accomplishments, but you, tell me a little bit about what Irvine has done, uh, because I know uh, you all have set a standard. Um, I know there's literally titles for these standards, like Title 24 for building codes. And it's like, this is a real serious matter with real serious guidelines. And so um, this isn't confidence, this is evidence we're talking about here. So tell me what's going on on campus. Well, it all comes down to people, and those people are people other than me in most cases. <laughs> so um uh, in the uh, early 90s, I, I inherited a, uh, a budget deficit that I had to solve, and it, it, it was accumulated by having uh, built, the campus had built before I got there, a number of buildings that were consuming too much energy, and so there was a growing utilities deficit, so it turned out that uh, the campus architect and I talked about this and uh, her name was Rebecca Gladson. And, and uh, I said, do you think you could beat title 24 by 20%? And uh, she said, well, let's try it. And, and uh, uh, so we started doing experiments way back before we, we were even thinking about green or sustainability or anything. We were doing it because of a budget deficit. That's how we started. The first buildings that we use real-time CO2 sensing to uh, regulate the amount of fresh air coming in from outdoors, that was in 1993. Hmm. That was several decades before most people were doing that. It's common practice now. And uh, actually, uh, with Rebecca, she was always meeting her goals. And so I just kept changing her goals, raising them up. And, and so, you know, she, she was hitting 20% beating Title 24, which is considered the toughest building code in the country by most uh, mechanical engineers. Uh, so I raised it to 30. She was beating that all the time. Uh, then, and and um, I didn't know if we could go higher than that, but when... Um, my boss uh, at the time, uh, Michael Drake, he was then chancellor at UC Irvine in 2007. And uh, he's now, as most people uh, in higher education know, is the president of the entire University of California system. When he told me that uh, the chancellors of the UC system had all agreed to make a, a pledge to uh, attain a carbon neutrality by by future date, which happens to be in the, in the middle of the 
of, of this decade. And uh, I, I said, well, I don't know what we're going to do to do that. But I think the one thing we are doing that works well is deep energy efficiency. So we're about ready to build at that time a stem cell building. I set a goal really high. Everybody thought I was nuts. I said, let's see if we can beat Title 24 by 50%. And I knew there was a new technology that I'd just seen, which did real-time air quality sensing in, in laboratories. Because in laboratories, one of the problems um, that made them so energy intensive in the prior half century was uh, they were, uh, the air changes and exhaust rates were just over-designed. That was considered the margin of safety, just over-design everything, whether there were airborne hazards or, or even people. In a, in a laboratory or not. And so we put in a sense uh, a system that uh, senses all those things and uh, we beat Title 24 by 50.3%. <laughs> and, and that attracted the attention yep. of the Obama administration. Uh, and so uh, we, along with about, oh, I think about 50 or 60 other organizations, I say organizations because they weren't all universities. There was a handful of universities. There were, there were factories, there were office buildings, there were other kinds of institutions like museums and so on. So uh, yeah, we were we were asked to join uh, by the president the Better Buildings uh, Challenge that he set. The challenge was to, uh, in our case, improve the efficiency, energy efficiency of the entire UC Irvine campus twenty percent by twenty twenty. Well, uh, we were. It almost jokes. You have to tell you this story. It's just it's it's so uh, amazing. President Obama came and spoke at our. 2014 con uh, convocation. It was in uh, Angel Stadium in Anaheim. Yeah, more than 40,000 people were, in, I believe, in the audience there. And he announced that he congratulated the campus for making his 2020 goal in 2013. There it is. Yeah, there it is. The, the roar that went up. Yeah. Just telling you about it makes my hair stand on end a little bit because I can. Yeah, I I'll it. never forget that. Yeah. And he said, UC Irvine is clearly ahead of the curve. And I'll tell you, him saying that, some of his popularity on our campus, saying something like that, and, right. and it's not just popularity, real respect for him and his leadership, that gave UC Irvine yet another boost in the direction. And uh, uh, among the student body and the faculty in every single part of the campus, from law to humanities to the arts to all the obvious ones like yeah. public health and, and uh, engineering and physical sciences and biological sciences. We just have a, an immense in, engagement with, yeah. with uh, climate studies, studying problems, but then, as I said, pivoting toward climate solutions. So, um, yeah, you can see how excited I am about this, but I, I didn't see it. this. I just ended up in the right place with the right values. And, and, uh, and I just set these ridiculous goals at the outset. Well, Fortunately, I had people uh, who didn't say, oh, we can't do that, or there's a reason or some, you know, no one, no one did that. And uh, with our laboratories, yeah, we cut the energy use in our laboratories and laboratories in every research university in the world are the highest energy consumers in, in, in a university. We cut it in half across the entire campus. All of our laboratories are using half or less of the energy than they used to use. So this is a big deal, and it, it, it's it's the basis now of what is, is is called the Smart Labs program, which has been now adopted by seven United States national laboratories. Those are like big campuses. When I say laboratories, I don't mean a building. I mean, you know, places like Los Alamos yeah. Yeah. or Sandia or Pacific Northwest. Those are campuses. 
So how do you get how do you get cities like New York in the same direction where I where I live? Um, like my my building has a code on it where I live. My wife and I live. Yeah. And it says I think we're at like either a D or a C rating. Um, every time I walk through the door, I look at that. I'm like, ah, that hurts. Like I don't I don't know why it hurts. I don't even know what it means exactly because it's just a, a single letter with a color. But uh, I mean, other than the top down influential Obama speech that got everybody across campus to get uh, to get into it. Like, how else can you get millions of people to pay attention to this? Well, kind of a big it, question. I know. It, I just kind of, I just kind of threw it, that. Well, it starts with seeing the problems, uh, and uh, that's uh, that's been one of the problems uh, overall of getting public awareness of of the climate changing because uh, it's an exponential curve, and and as you know, an exponential curve at the bottom of the curve, it's barely noticeable. Right. That it's going up, right? But then, really studying that, scientists and and, and this actually wasn't at UC Irvine; it was at UC San Diego. A professor there named Ravel, half a century ago, I think it was it was uh, that, that he noticed there was a doubling rate. Now that that's the thing that characterizes an exponential curve. Every every so many years, it'll double and it'll double right. and it'll double right. and it'll double. That's called the doubling rate. So it's not obvious in the first years because it's 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 so so little. But then if it's doubling. <laughs> every 10 years or 20 or 15, whatever it is, that's a problem. And and so um, people at Irvine are aware of the science behind the observations and that they can see mm. what's going to happen to in a, any, any model that has exponential factors in it is, is going to be a big problem. And it's going to start taking off at a rate that will get way ahead of policy, way ahead of business alternatives, way ahead of uh, technology solutions. That's the problem. It's a, it becomes a, a timing problem. Right. And, and even right now, uh, in, in the wake of uh, all these United Nations uh, discussions you've heard about, yeah. um, there's, there's almost certain um, belief on the part of climate scientists that we're going to have thermal overshoot. And they're not talking anymore about thermal overshoot of 1.5 degrees centigrade. They're talking about thermal overshoot of 2 degrees centigrade. And, uh, of course, another thing that um, confuses the public a little bit, if they're not used to centigrade, they don't realize 2 degrees centigrade, I believe that's 3.7 degrees Fahrenheit. But but that's not the main problem. The main problem is more extreme weather uh, conditions, more extreme winds, storms, uh, hurricanes, huge variations in temperature things that just uh, that totally destabilize the the, the uh, water systems around the world uh, including in many cases huge agrarian economies that sit in big valleys in places like asia and africa uh, where at the headwaters it's been fed by glacier for a long time well look what happens when a glacier melts as a glacier melts it looks like you have more than enough water Right up to the end, and it's like dropping off a cliff at the end, mm. and, and so it, it, it's about a lot of these things are dynamically complex in ways that are, are not linear. Uh, and, and as uh, I was saying about the exponential part, but the, all these cascading effects interact with each other, and and so water affects uh, sustainability of uh, food security. Right. Uh, it, it, you know, I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, it, it causes depletion of uh, uh, pollinators, uh, bees, for example. This really affects food security in, in many parts of the world. I mean, it gets. This is the problem. It, it's it's interrelated. It's and that Ralph Cicerone was right to call it the Earth system. 
because it makes people say, let's figure out this whole problem, every every single aspect of it, including the ones that don't even look significant now because they'll probably get significant because of all these interlinkages in a complex dynamic system. Hmm. So we need to get the uh, we need to get the message out. I guess we've been trying. Al Gore started trying to get the message out uh, midway through. <laughs> yeah, uh, now, going to your other... building. I don't know. It, it, high rise buildings. I assume it's a high rise. Is, is a, it a tall building? It's, it's sixteen stories. Yeah, it probably has curtain walls on it. Uh, curtain walls are where you have floor, uh, floor to ceiling glass and part of the building, uh, uh, facing quite often facing the sun. Yes, not floor to ceiling, but close. Yeah. Close. Yeah, big, big, and and the reason those. Uh, uh, that, that was done on a lot of buildings because um, uh, the lighting in buildings uh, 50 years ago was predominantly fluorescent lights, uh, especially in office buildings, commercial buildings and office buildings. It was fluorescent lights. So uh, people really wanted daylight, which um, had uh, better color. It didn't flicker. And um, uh, there were lots of things about daylight which were better. Now, LEDs can produce light that's as good as Oh, daylight. Right. Yeah. So they're, they so made you don't have, need to have floor to ceiling, wall to wall windows anymore. And, and those are letting in a lot of air, uh, a lot of uh, rather heat, excuse me, right. in, in the, uh, sunny periods. And, and a lot of cold is, is or a lot of heat's going out of the building, making making the building colder in uh, uh, cold seasons. So uh, that's just one example of, of, the, of the way buildings can be built differently, should no, be built differently that. now. Yeah. So we did that across the campus, too. So we started once we we built that stem cell building and it beat title 24 by 50.3 uh, that remember the goal is 50 percent then we started we, we started using the, the same principles across all not just all the lab buildings but across all the buildings on campus because when you think of a campus you have many spaces that have highly varying amounts of occupancy a lecture hall is a good example they may be full hmm. 350 people, let's say, it may be half full because it's an upper division course that doesn't have the same enrollment that a lower division course has. Uh, it, it may have uh, uh, one or two people in there when the janitor's in there at the end of the day. It'll have zero people in there overnight. Right. Well, see, a lot of those things used to be designed so they operated with constant amount of fresh air coming in. Well, that's ridiculous. So, and, and there are lots of things. There are food courts, there, there are rec centers, uh, there are all kinds of classrooms, all kinds of spaces on a, a campus that have occupancy rates that go from 100% to, to practically zero and, and many times in a week. Hmm. So we have in place now the, the smart system I mentioned that we uh, designed for laboratories with, with fewer sensors and fewer data points. It extends across the entire campus now of, of UC Irvine. So we have a smart campus. We're measuring 465,000 data points, most of them every five seconds. Oh, there's a number. Okay, so this is a yeah. uh, this is a pretty sophisticated thing going on here, isn't it? It is, and and it means that when there's anything that goes wrong in the system of ventilation or or uh, uh, exhaust in the case of laboratories, we discover it within seconds or minutes, and uh, we know that some of those. Uh, uh, same kinds of uh, uh, faults existed in all the buildings we've renovated, all the laboratories, for example, we renovated. We found things that probably had gone undiscovered for decades. Yeah. And, and it pays for itself. The energy is it. so great. It pays for itself, even though what I just described is is sophisticated and, and uh, there's a capital cost to it. Sure. Um, it easily pays for itself. And it pays for itself even more in, in making a safer environment for students 
and uh, it pays for itself and having a more stable research environment for faculty. Hmm. It's um, I realizing as we talk about this, you kind of sit at the intersection of resources, capital and execution, right? It's like that's, yeah. your, that's, that's your nest. This is fascinating. I mean, so if we could keep going, uh, sure. I, maybe, you know, I'll be back on the show. We should catch back up and see what Irvine's up to. Um, I, but I, I'm sorry. I give long answers. You ask no, a question. No, it's, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, um, they're great answers and we're going to have them all in there. Um, so as with every show, I will end with, um, you know, what's the, what's the one thing you want people to remember about you, uh, or what you're up to, um, well, the one, I don't know if it's one thing, but like all your other questions, it's a little more complicated, but first of all, the, the, the most important thing is, uh, I guess it's not about me. Uh, if, uh, what I've been talking about is, is, uh, the value system in the environment I've been able to work in, uh, and, um, uh, the value of experimentation, questioning the status quo is, uh, not just respected, it's expected, uh, it, it, the sense of public accountability that's always in the background behind, behind all of this. So I would say uh, the best advice I can give anybody is, um, based on what I just said, pick your parents wisely, pick your bosses wisely. <laughs> that uh, is not what I was expecting, and it is a great answer, but I, I appreciate the honesty in it. I like it a lot. Well, Wendell Brasi, thank you for being on. This was, this was awesome. We'll, we'll have you back on. I'd love to get an update. Uh, on all the things that you're working on, it's uh, what it was forty six thousand data points, four hundred sixty five thousand. Oh, I even thought it was a lot without a zero on. That it was an order of magnitude off. All four hundred sixty thousand <laughs> data points. We're going to have to review yeah. those uh, next time we can have you on. Thank you so much for being here. Sure, I enjoyed your uh, questions and enjoyed talking to you. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to the most interesting people in higher education. This listening experience is brought to you by Noodle the network of online higher education programs. Our mission is to lower the cost of higher ed through a pursuit of excellence in online learning. And make sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. See you next time.